All right, let's keep this cont train going. But before then, chores. Um, so I have all this up on iTunes now. Go find it there or Podbean, wherever. Uh, links are in the description, uh, along with my Patreon, which would be great if anyone could contribute to just... My goal is to just make enough to pay for the servers on Podbean, which is like $12 a month. So that amount would be great uh, if I could get there. But, you know, obviously only if you can do it. Uh, don't feel like you have to. But for now, Kant, we start here with the Transcendental Doctrine of Power Judgment, the second chapter there. So, of course, to know what we've been up to till now, go back and listen to the first two. Uh, but for here, we're going to start with the Transcendental Doctrine of Power Judgment. So he starts out this chapter by saying that he wants to think about the subject. So we've alluded to this in the past, at least coming up to this point, how the subject is formed by their, um, I guess, unity of a perception or the kinds of um, undercurrents that occur underneath possible perception and possible reason, that is the synthetic unity. So the subject has the capacity to reason to some extent, assuming that they have a basic knowledge in the world, uh, but that doesn't really give, or for Kant, that is not exactly what constitutes the subject because it's something that happens before reason is made possible. So the judgments that one can concern, concern oneself with, that is, judgments that exist in the realm of reason or the realm of the a priori or in the realm of analytic judgment, uh, if we focus on that for a moment, um, can still be false if there are no contradictions, which might seem weird. Let me explain. So let me read Kant's words here. But even if there is no contradiction without our, within our judgment, it can nevertheless combine concepts in a way not entailed by the object, or even without any ground being given to us either a priori or a posteriori that would justify such a judgment, and thus... For all that a judgment may be free of any internal contradiction, it can still be either false or groundless. So what I think Kant is doing here is suggesting that for him, a judgment in the way that he is considering it doesn't necessarily hinge upon its being logically consistent. And the reason that he says that is because traditionally, and this was explicated a little in the other episodes, um, and earlier in the book, what is traditionally taken to be reality or truth is when a concept kind of, there's some concordance between the concept and an object in the world, which for him is one that's kind of artificial, not in a kind of, uh, you know, Baudrillardian simulacral sense, but one that is artificial in that we can only ever know things through perception and we can't know a thing in itself. So for that reason, he says, why do we hinge so much upon uh, a kind of concordance between two kind of arbitrary things? And one way I think that kind of vulgarly we can think about this is that, like the arbitrary nature of the signifier in signifying a thing in the world. Of course, there's actual, there's no um, proper affiliation between the letters D-O-G and the animal we see out in the world. But however, we make that kind of connection to it. So for Kant, he says, sure, we might be able to, to relate one thing to another without experiencing any contradictions. But for him, he's like, okay, well, that demands a kind of, 
um, basic understanding of things that happens to us before we even have the uh, capacity to reason. So therefore, there is no like truth to the matter. And so he finds it ironic that we base all judgments on there not being any contradictions when in fact the whole thing is basically groundless. So he says, or where, where he's kind of leading to here is how getting at the what lies underneath reason, that is the synthetic unity, in a sense allows for certain contradictions, but those contradictions do not undermine the validity of that approach, whereas in the analytic framework, they do, right? So if I say all bachelors are married, then I am saying something that is contradictory and therefore untrue, whereas for Kant in the synthetic mode, which we'll get to, these contradictions aren't quite as prescient. They, they don't pose as much of a threat. So before getting into the synthetic mode, uh, he tells us that the fact that no predicate can relate to a subject in a contradictory way, that is, um, like the example I just gave, all bachelors are married. The fact that we only know that about logic or logical reasoning or judgment, that is, that it cannot be it cannot contain a contradiction, does not actually tell us anything about what it is. So it's a negative um, kind of judgment of it because it, it just tells us what it isn't. It doesn't tell us what it is. Uh, it'd be like saying, no crow is white. It doesn't really tell us much about crows. Like, sure, we know that no crow is white, but what does what have we learned about the crow in that instance? So he's like, okay, how can we actually think about analytic judgments in more of a, I guess, a significant way? And for him, he's not satisfied with that because this imbues the status of the analytic judgment or kind of locates its validity, not in its content, but in its form. So if it is contradictory, then therefore it is invalid and therefore we cannot include it in our, you know, in our system. So he's not totally satisfied with that. In fact, says, well, can we just totally do away with the content, even if the, you know, it appears to be contradictory. So in his words, in case someone's questioning me, uh, this is on 279 into 280. Uh, now, the proposition that no predicate pertains to a thing that contradicts it is called the principle of contradiction and is a general though merely negative criterion of all truth. But on that account, it also belongs merely to logic, since it holds of cognitions merely as conditions in general, without regard to their content, and says that contradiction entirely annihilates and cancels them. So this is him getting at, I guess, the entire theme of the book, that is the critique of pure reason, where for him, even if you have um, a properly non-contradictory analytic judgments that are coherent, logical, methodical, they can never arrive at what he thinks to be the kind of truth of the matter, which he continues on uh, the, next, uh, the same page, to which he says, Hence, we must also allow the principle of contradiction to count as the universal and completely sufficient principle of all analytic cognition. But its authority and usefulness does not extend beyond this as a sufficient criterion of truth. For that no cognition can be opposed to it without annihilating itself certainly makes this principle into a conditio sine qua non. Uh, but that's like, we cannot be without. So it, it treats... to. Uh, reiterate, um, it makes the principle of uh, contradiction something that it cannot do without. 
uh, but not into a determining ground of the truth of our cognition. Since we now really have to do only with the synthetic part of our cognition, we will, to be sure, always be careful not to act contrary to the inviolable principle, but we cannot expect any advice from it in regard to the truth of this sort of recognition, or this cognition, sorry. So he says, sure, we have these analytic judgments, they are exerted at the level of a kind of subjective reasoning individual, but they can never tell us anything about what exists underneath. So the synthetic judgment in relation to analytic judgment is often ignored by what he's called the general logic, but he says maybe, just maybe, the synthetic logic gives us the secret to what he calls pure understanding, which can come about through the transcendental logic, that is the logic that looks at the undercurrent of all possible logic, or in his words, for by completing this task, transcendental logic can fully satisfy its goal of determining the domain and boundaries of pure understanding. So to reiterate, uh, a synthetic judgment is, a, I guess, a proper mix of what was once considered split between a posteriori, that is, knowledge through experience, and a priori knowledge, that is, knowledge through reason. So he says that there's a kind of mix between the two in proper uh, synthetic, um, a synthetic mode. So whereas his predecessors might have flip-flopped back and forth, you know, some saying, you know, the only key to real understanding comes from experience, and other ones like, no, it only comes from reason. Kant says, well, why do we have to, I guess, take sides here? Where he tells us that um, essentially all experience abides by rules, and these rules, I guess, point to what he calls the supreme principle. And in his words, the supreme principle is when every object stands under the necessary conditions of the synthetic unity of the manifold of intuition in a possible experience. Well, what the hell does that mean? Uh, the synthetic unity of the manifold is the kind of apparatus under which or that gives experience possibility. And is able to perceive a manifold of perception, an entire array of things, to, to coordinate them within the, the mind, to coordinate them and to make them coded so that they can be understood, which then lends a meaning to that experience. And then that experience can be coded in this kind of synthetic unity that happens in the brain. So therefore, Kant says that there must be some kind of code, right? There's a code that does this or in his words, he calls it the rules. And he says that even nature itself has these rules where everything abides by this kind of um, this system that exists underneath all possible perception. So the how we perceive the world, even you know nature in the world, he then comes to codify in its own system where he says that perception can be broken into two broad categories. There is first the mathematical and then the dynamical. So the mathematical for him is the basic kind of propensity to perceive. It is the kind of rules, code that governs the possibility of perception. Whereas the dynamical is the lending of existence, or is the lending of things in the world to be perceived. The, you know, what I'll just, I guess, solipsistically say, the dynamic association between a subject and an ever-changing moving world. Because for Kant, and this is, pertains to his ideas about space and time, it's one thing to be able to perceive. However, it's another thing to be able to perceive things in space and time. 
because without our understanding of those things, we wouldn't be able to perceive at all. So now he's going to further break these two down. I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. So we have these two, mathematical and dynamical. Each of those can be subdivided into two categories in themselves. And again, I'll try to be as clear as I can. I'll present them all, and then I'll go through each one specifically. So the principles are axioms of intuition, which are formal, and then anticipations of perception, which are real. Now these abide or correspond or fall under the umbrella of the mathematical. So let me repeat. Under the mathematical, we have what he calls axioms of intuition, which are formal, and then anticipations of perception, which are real. Okay, now, under the umbrella of the dynamical, we have two more. The first one is analogies of experience, and the fourth one, or the second one here, is postulates of empirical thinking in general. So the first one there, that is analogies of experience, and again, we're under the umbrella of the dynamical. Analogies of experience is physical, whereas postulates of empirical uh, thinking generally is metaphysical. So this dynamical approach does deal with some, to some extent with the kind of what he calls the physiology of the human, right? What he at one point kind of put under the classification of general logic, where he located like psychology in that domain, because where it might appear as though psychology is giving us is moving us towards an understanding of the synthetic unity. He just says it kind of only gets at the material side of it. It only gets at the, um, like the operations of it, not itself. So I kind of digress. Let me reiterate here. So we have these two guiding principles or two guiding processes, uh, mathematical and dynamical that can be further broken down into Number one, axioms of intuition. Number two, participations of perception. And now into the dynamical. Number three, analogies of experience. And number four, postulates of empirical thinking generally. So now we're going to go through and break each one down. So we'll start out with number one here. That is axioms of intuition that falls under the mathematical umbrella. So this axiom is that extensive magnitude uh, it involves ex the extensive magnitude, which is the process of seeing things happen in sequence, which demands an understanding of time, and for that matter, space. So to be able to perceive things in sequence, and let's take an example, if we're seeing a car drive down the road, and at one point I see a car, let's say, in one position, then I blink, and you know it's going, say, 60 miles an hour, then it's a little bit further down the road, Kant says that it's a very special capacity that we have to be able to know that those are the same cars. Because if he, he, and he says, if we didn't have an understanding of space nor time, then we would totally dissociate the first car from the second car, when in fact they're the exact same thing. So this is what he means by the axiom of intuition, where he says that appearances essentially belong to space and time. So the kind of apprehension of this axiom happens or can be kind of calculated in the form of a magnitude. So an extensive magnitude is when we see parts of something, that is, a car in one position, car in another position, we don't have the total sequence of the car moving from start to finish, you know, from just looking at a highway, I only see, say I focus on one car, I don't see its whole journey. From those 
let's say those two examples of me seeing it one place, blinking, seeing it another, I am able to deduce that the car is, it's the same car, and I'm able to predict, you know, with pretty good assurance where it's going to end up, right? Like if I were to drop something, you know, I only perceive it at various points in time. I don't see it as like a full dynamical thing, but it is from only seeing it in those little points in time, I am able to extract from it. It's like a synecdoche and make an understanding or develop an understanding of the whole. So this axiom precedes all the possibility of perception itself. So it's, he says it's kind of geometrical in some sense, because it demands a, uh, an understanding of space that he thinks is, you know, geometrically um, kind of conducted. Um, but he says, okay, well, we can't be confused then because even our understanding of numerica formula, formulae, formulas, um, even our understanding of numerical formula shouldn't be associated with this axiom because this axiom precedes even the possibility for that understanding. So now we'll move into the second subcategory of the mathematical, and that is anticipations of perception. So I'll start this one out by reading a quote. So he says, and this is on 290, in all appearances, the real, which is an object of the sensation, has intensive magnitude, that is, a degree. So in, unlike space and time, appearances aren't pure for Kant, right? Because appearances are, uh, they, they don't actually get at the thing in itself, nor do they pertain to the kind of, uh, they are not pure in that they are devoid of all experience, is what I should say. Because for something to be pure for Kant, like all the thinkers before him, it had to be devoid of all experience and had to just get at or be arrived at through reason. So reality for Kant um, corresponds essentially to empirical consciousness. That is our ability to see things in the world and then associate that with a concept that organizes them and gives us a sense of a kind of cohesion of all things happening in the world, outside of us. So in the transition then from the empirical to the pure, reality for Kant disappears because in the pure instance, the real world, experience, appearance, all that is bracketed off. So now the distinction between the axiom, that is from the, the first subcategory, and this one is that we are dealing with two different kinds of kind of measurements uh, sorry, two different kinds of magnitudes. So whereas in the first one, under the axiom, we had what he called extensive magnitude, so that is seeing parts being able to form the whole as they exist in space and time. Here he's interested in empirical understanding, and as he's made very clear, empirical understanding does not tell us anything about space and time, because we aren't concerned with that. We are only concerned with the things that exist within space and time. So instead, he opposes extensive magnitude indicative of the axiom, indicative of the kind of pure um, mode, with what he calls now the intensive magnitude. So the extensive magnitude sees things in sequence, as I just presented, whereas the intensive one only sees things in moments. And this intensive magnitude is measured in terms of a degree or degrees. So the example that he gives is with colors. He says every color, for example, red, has a degree, which however small it may be, is never the smallest. And it is the same with warmth, with the moment of gravity, etc. So a, an important point that I want to kind of 
uh, expound upon there is that it, it, no, no, no degree can be or can be they can be zero because then it would cease to exist like it would disappear from perception. Whereas when we're dealing with the extensive magnitude, it can't be zero because space and time always hold it up, always keep sequence going. So everything for him between what he calls non-reality, which is zero, and reality equals one, has a degree. That is, red can have a degree. Uh, you know, one shade of red might have a different degree than another, or it's kind of transparent or, or whatever. So this understanding, he thinks, is what so-called natural philosophers for him get wrong. So for this, I'm going to read out his words. This is on 294. But who among these, for the most part, mathematical and mechanical students of nature, ever realized that their inference rested solely on a metaphysical presupposition, which they make so much pretense of avoiding? For they assume that the real in space, I cannot call it here impenetrability or weight, since these are empirical concepts, is everywhere one and the same, and can be differentiated only according to its extensive magnitude, in other words, its amount. Against this presupposition, for which they can have no ground in experience and which is therefore merely metaphysical, I oppose a transcendental proof, which, to be sure, will not explain the variation in the filling of space, but which still will entirely obviate, that is, um, preclude, or, uh, get rid of, the alleged necessity of the presupposition that the difference in a question cannot be explained except by the assumption of empty spaces, and which has the merit of at least granting the understanding the freedom also to think of this difference in another way. For the, if the explanation of nature should make some hypo hypothesis necessary for this end. So what I take him to say here is that these people are wrong in that, and just to re-quote him, uh, they take reality to be the same everywhere. Whereas for Kant, if we consider things in terms of degrees, what that allows for is an entrance of experience, because we wouldn't be able to perceive things in terms of degrees if we weren't experiencing them. And it is through this experience that we're able to get a better sense of the, the synthetic unity, because the synthetic unity rests totally upon the, the mix of experience and reason. So if we bracket that off for Kant, sure, we might learn about empirical truths in the world, but they won't tell us anything about ourselves or the processes by which we can actually come to know things at all. So, for example, like we have different tastes when it comes to eating or different, we smell things differently or anything like that, that tells us that reality is not a kind of coherent, um, universal, universally experienced thing. It has to do so much with experience. And if we assume reality to be this kind of thing in itself, then therefore we believe there to be actual objects that are things in themselves, and that with this presupposition, we can then infer that, we can infer, we can deduce that uh, the world can be understood like mathematically. Whereas for Kant, that's like, okay, if maybe if you believe in, you know, God, then we can do that, but it assumes a lot because we don't actually know that we can know anything at all without experience itself. So it seems totally naive for Kant for us to bracket off experience generally. So that propels us here into the third subcategory, that is the first one that falls under dynamical. So this, to reiterate, is the physical one under physiology. Uh, where, and I'll start this one with a quote as well. 
He says experience is possible only through the representation of a necessary connection of perceptions, which is, we know this a priori, a priori And that is because it is empirical and that it demands seeing things, something out in the world. But it demand, or the only way we know that is by reasoning it, right? We reason the fact that, okay, we can only experience things in the world because of a, a certain apparatus in us that allows us to perceive that. Because no experience can actually say that. Yeah, so no experience can actually tell us about um, that or that possibility of percep- of reasoning our the existence of this kind of principle. So it is empirical, but it relies on the synthesis of perceptions that we can only understand through reason. So I'm going to jump ahead here because about um, 20 pages later, he gives us a really good summary of what this means or what analogies of experience necessarily are. So these then are the three analogies of experience. They are nothing other than principles of the determination of the existence of appearances in time in accordance with all three of its modi, that of the relation to time itself as a magnitude, that of the relation in time as a series, that is one after the other, and finally, that in time as a sum of all existence, and that's simultaneity. So let me reiterate, we have uh, the relation to time itself as a magnitude, so that's the magnitude of existence, that is duration, things happening over time. The relation uh, in time as a series, that is something happening one after the other. And then finally, that in time as a sum of all existence, simultaneity. So in, in other words, we have uh, something occurring through, uh, through time, that is duration, like a car moving down the highway. Then there is, uh, we perceive things in terms of the relation in time in a series. So I, um, you know, move my lamp from one place to another, and I know it's still the same lamp, even though it's essentially changed places, it's, it's changed in time. Uh, and then finally, simultaneity, that I'm able to perceive all things around me, all things that I perceive as happening in the same time, in the same uh, time as experience. So these three, um, I guess, three modi of time that exists under the analogies of experience uh, are all determined by the law of synthetic unity. So objects are thought, or all things that we perceive in the world are thought in terms of analogy. So it's always in relation to another point in time that we're able to recognize anything at all. So like the car moving down the highway, if I just saw a car blip on the highway as though it came out of nowhere, and then disappear again, I wouldn't have any information about that car. It wouldn't exist because it would totally uh, fail to you know, exist in my framework. But of course, that begs some questions like if that actually did occur, which obviously it couldn't, so what's the point of talking about it? But if something were to just appear and disappear, then we would probably still be able to cognize it because we already have a history of you know cognizing things in moments but for Kant it would beg a very important question and that is how do you actually recognize something if it somehow exists outside of time which it, it would exist in space in that moment because we saw it in space but it would seem to be devoid of time in that it was you know a blip and disappears of course someone might say well it still exists in time because it's there for some kind of moment of time but really try to bear with me that something just appears for uh, a non-time for less than time and then disappears again. So in order for us to understand, at least according to Kant, anything at all, 
It must happen in relation to other things and in relation to itself over the process of time, through time. So these three analogies, that is the three modi of time, that is persistence or duration, succession or things happening one after the other, and then simultaneity, uh, Kant takes the time to break each one of those down. And he goes on a big tangent to do that. But I will, because I think they're pretty obvious, but I'll, I'll be quick about it. For that reason, I'll be quick about it. So of the first analogy that is in relation to duration, he says, in all change of appearance, substance persists and its quantum is neither increased or diminished in nature. So a car moving down the highway um, might look different in that our the angle we are seeing it changes and therefore has a different kind of, um, we are receiving different data about it, that is different perception of it. It is still the same car and we know that it is the same car because of a certain duration. Or if we think of anything else in time and space, like I look at the lamp on my desk and I look at it and I look at it and I look at it, I still know it's the same lamp because I have an understanding of time and duration. So there's some wiggle room and the car example is really the best one because it might change appearance, but it still remains the same. So it's substance, and this is a term Kant uses, at least in the English translation, its substance remains the same. So now we move on to the second analogy where he says that all alterations occur in, a, in accordance with the law of the connection of cause and effect. So he chalks this up to the synthetic faculty of the imagination that allows us to understand things in terms of cause and effect, which if we didn't have any understanding of, we wouldn't be able to perceive anything at all because it would, it would be as though it existed outside of time. So the principle is that no effect goes without its cause or no, no effect exists without its cause or nothing happens without something having preceded it. There's no first moment that it's to say. Uh, and it is only by this understanding that we are able to garner some kind of uh, code or understanding of a thing changing through time and space where we know that, um, you know, a caterpillar turns into a butterfly because we know the process of caterpillars turning into butterflies. That is, we know the cause and we know the result or the effect. So let us be clear here. Uh, we can't even say for sure that appearances occur in time, right? Because that would, we would claim then to know too much about the appearance and therefore would know too much about the thing in itself. Rather, Kant is clear that it's only in us humans and other thinking, seeing, perceiving beings that have an understanding of time, because we can be fairly sure the lamp doesn't have an understanding of time. It is only us that imbues the image, imbues the appearance, imbues the thing with a status in time and space. So it can all be brought back to us, which is really the crux of this, his entire argument that our understanding of appearances, the fact that we can actually see things at all and, and perceive them, tells us that we can understand that very process. So now here we'll get into the third analogy that is all substances, insofar as they are simultaneous, stand in thoroughgoing, thoroughgoing community, that is interaction with one another. So that's simultaneity. So our understanding that things exist at the same time, and we only know that by having some kind of relation or understanding a relation between them as being, you know, objects in the domain, in the community of our understanding of time and space, uh, gives us the possibility of recognizing them at all. 
So this is what he calls the existence of the manifold at the same time, which requires a minimum of reason and perception uh, or experience. So again, we're getting at the mix of these two. So this is why we can't look at the world dogmatically that is only through concepts, because it fails to recognize that we need to perceive the world and things happening uh, simultaneously in time that in order to actually understand what is going on. You know, we can't just reason that through. So then that concludes the analogies, and that concludes the third uh, kind of subcategory here under the dynamical, and that is the physical. Now we're going to go with, into the fourth one, which still falls under the dynamical, but is related to the metaphysical, and that is the postulates of empirical thinking in general. So then we, or I'll just read something here. Or actually, I won't read something quite yet. Okay, he gives us four postulates, and they go as follows. Number one, or sorry, he gives us three postulates, sorry. Uh, number one, that which agrees with the formal condition of experience is possible. Number two, that which is connected with concrete condition of experience is actual. Number three, that whose connection with the actual is determined in accordance with general condition of experience is necessary. So these are essentially empirical conditions. And now I'll read something here from 332 to 333. It says, The principles of a modality are not, however, objective synthetic, since the predicates of possibility, actuality, and necessity, so that relates to the three postulates I just named, do not in the least augment the concept of which they are asserted in such a way as to add something to the representation of the object. But since they are nevertheless always synthetic, they are only they are so only subjectively, that is, they add to the concept of the thing, of a thing, the real, about which they do not otherwise say anything. That is the cognitive power whence it arises and has its seat, so that if it is merely connected in the understanding with the formal conditions of experience, its object is called possible. If it is, if it is, if it is in, my God, if it is in connection with perception, sensation as the matter of the senses, and through this determined by means of the understanding, then the object is actual. And if it is determined through the connection of perceptions in accordance with concepts, then the object is called necessary. So accordingly, we can postulate the principles of modality with the very same right, since they do not augment their concept of things in general, but rather only indicate the way in which in general it is combined with the cognitive power. So these postulates of experience are totally necessary and, you know, they lend themselves to this kind of somewhat subjective synthetic unity. To bracket them off would be simply to engage in a kind of idealism. So what the hell does that mean, idealism? Well, Kant pokes at two different idealist um, kind of forms of thought or idealist ideas. The first one comes out of Descartes, and that is the idea that existence of objects in space is doubtful. So that's the idea that there's, you know, the evil demon that might be uh, kind of creating a fake world out there. And for Descartes, the only thing I can be sure about is my own mind, right? My own self. So this is a form of idealism for Kant because it brackets off the exterior world and just says, all I can know is my kind of inner reasoning capacity. So another form of intuition then is that the existence of objects in space is absolutely impossible. And that's uh, indicative of the work of Berkeley. So for Kant, these two forms fail to account for affect produced in subject through experience, so by, by objects. 
which pretty much says or says that these idealists are only sure of themselves. So in doing that, they completely bracket off the outside world and therefore bracket off experience. So against this strand, Kant proposes a theorem. He says, The mere but empirically determined consciousness of my own existence proves the existence of objects in space outside me. So he's saying, in distinction to these forms of idealism, that the only way we can actually have an understanding of ourselves through reason is by having an understanding of the world outside. Therefore, by proving my existence of myself, as Descartes claims to have done, I therefore prove the existence of the outside, because no reason is sufficiently possible without an understanding of concepts that have derived from experience. And in, I guess not exactly in his words, but the proof that he provides is that it is only possible for me to perceive myself in time that is as persistent. I must be acted upon by a thing that is time from outside. What is more, I am only con constituted by my timed perception of things in time that is uh, proving their existence. So that wraps up this chapter here. There. Now we get on to one of the, I guess, core components of this text, where he outlines the phenomena and the noumena, that is the third chapter here. So as we know, the transcendental, transcendental use of understanding or mobilizing the transcendental use of understanding to get at uh, a thing in itself is impossible, right? We cannot actually know a thing in itself. We can only see its perception. Whereas the empirical use of understanding just gets at a, uh, appearances. And that, you know, kind of this is a summary, really. Pure concepts can't be transcendental because pure concepts are devoid of experience. So how this corresponds to the phenomenon and the noumenon is as follows. The phenomenon understands things in terms of their appearance. It, it deals with, it deals with uh, how we perceive things in the world. Whereas the noumenon is the understanding, ostensibly, of a thing in itself. You know, what exists beneath the appearance. So in his words, and this is from 360 to 361, if by a noumenon we understand a thing insofar as it is not an object of our sensible intuition, because we abstract from the manner of our intuition of it, then this is a noumenon of the negative sense. But if we understand by that an object of a, of a non-sensible intuition, then we assume a special kind of intuition, namely intellectual intuition, which, however, is not our own, and the possibility of which we cannot understand, and this would be the noumenon in a positive sense. So in human words, a negative noumenon is when we think that we can perceive through our sensibilities a thing in itself, like me touching the lamp. I, I claim then to know what the thing is, and I claim to have a kind of thing in itself understanding of it. Now he contrasts that with the positive noumenon, which is the one that arrives through reason. Like I reason what the lamp is, I reason its characteristics, I reason you know what it does, and, and so on and so forth. Now, again, neither of these is really possible because they, each one relies on their own kind of faculties. That is, the negative one relies on pure uh, sensibility, pure interaction with the thing, whereas uh, the negative one or the positive one relies on intellectual reasoning of the thing, which separates the two. So no matter what, we can't actually think of the noumenon, but he gives a kind of uh, he lends the possibility or proposes the possibility that there might be another kind of faculty that we are not maybe aware of yet 
or it's um, wrong to assume that when thinking about noumenon in the negative sense, that is of sensibility, me touching or smelling or tasting a thing, and then apparently knowing something about it, uh, that it, it would be wrong to simply say that it is only through sensation that we can arrive at that because Kant's like, we can't know. Like it's very, it'd be impossible for us to actually know if we have this faculty and what it would actually look like because then it would posit like a dogmatic metaphysical thing that we can't, can't get at. Now this propels us into the appendix here of this uh, chapter titled on the amphiboly, that is the ambiguity, of the concepts of reflection through the confusion of the empirical use of the understanding with the transcendental. So it's pretty self-explanatory. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Very, very good. Thanks, Kant. So here he opposes transcendental reflection with logical reflection. So for him, transcendental reflection uh, is when concepts in a state of mind can belong to each other. Sorry, let me let me rephrase this. So the, re the relation, however, in which the concepts in a state of mind can belong to each other are those of identity and difference, of agreement and opposition, of the inner and the outer, and finally of the determinable and the determination, matter and form. So the correct determination of this relation depends on the cognitive power in which they subjectively belong to each other, whether in sensibility or in understanding. So the action through which I make the comparison of representations in general with the cognitive power in which they are situated, and through which I distinguish whether they are to be compared to one another as belonging to the pure understanding or to pure intuition, I call transcendental reflection. And that's on 367 in my version. Makes sense, right? <laughs> that's what we got. Uh, and then he opposes to that uh, logical reflection, which I'll read the entire section here of really quick. Uh, so to be sure, one could, um, one could therefore say that logical reflection is a mere comparison, for in its case there is complete abstraction from the cognitive power to which the given representations belong, and they are thus to be treated the same as far as their seat in the mind is concerned. Transcendental reflection, however, which goes to the objects themselves, contains the ground of the possibility of the objective comparison of the representations to each other, and is therefore the very, very different from the other, since the cognitive power to which the representations belong is not precisely the same. So the way I like to think about this is that if we have a kind of logical reflection, you know, relating two things, we know that the lamp is not a, you know, a pen. Uh, we know that, you know, the notebook is not the wall. And we know that these things kind of in the world, but only through our perception, do not correspond to one another. That's a kind of a logical reflection. However, the transcendental reflection is looking at the way in which in our own mind, we are able to coordinate or, you know, categorize, classify these things as a, as a process that happens without our reason nor intuition. So then he takes this further. And he breaks down the logical reflection into four different relations. So again, this is logical reflection dealing with appearances, things out in the world that we apparently know about, but yeah, all our sensation kind of thing, or things we reason about the world in an empirical sense. So there are four modes of relation. The first one is identity and difference. So in this, time and space can help discern things that otherwise share the same quality and quantity, Fair enough. Uh, number two, agreement and opposition. So uh, it'd be best to just read this one. That is, um, if reality is represented only through the pure understanding, 
then no opposition between realities can be thought. That is, a relation such that when they are bound together in one subject, they cancel out their consequences. So realities in appearance, on the contrary, can certainly be in opposition with each other and, united in the same subject, one can partly or wholly destroy the consequence of the other, like two moving forces in the same straight line, that either push or pull a point in opposed directions, or also like an enjoyment that balances the scale against a pain. So pure understanding can't do that for Kant because uh, it only ever has an understanding of things actually happening in the world and is therefore always in the service of a kind of reality, whereas Kant is opposing that with like real lived experience, like how uh, pain can be mitigated by enjoyment. And you can have canceling out of these two effects where we get reality for him equals zero, where reality kind of vanishes for a moment or its degree goes down to that value. So now we get into the third relation, that is the inner and outer, which is idealism and dualism, because the inner corresponds to us believing they're only, you know, we can only be sure of ourselves, the inside, not the outside. So that's idealism versus the outer or dualism. So that's the idea that space uh, is outer and time is inner. Or as he says earlier, time corresponds to the soul almost in the, in the human. So for him, he suggests that Leibniz forgets this and proposes a kind of uh, monad. So this is the idea that everything forms like a totality, a kind of oneness. So Kant says Leibniz is wrong in doing that because that claims a kind of domination or an understanding of objects that goes much beyond what we are actually as humans capable of. So then we get here the fourth mode of relation that is matter and form uh where for leibniz matter precedes form for kant the opposite but i'll just read here uh so matter and form these these are two concepts that ground all other relations or sorry all other reflection so inseparably are they bound up with every use of the understanding the former signifies the determinable in general the latter its determination both in the transcendental sense, since one abstracts from all difference, is in what is given and from the way in which that is determined. So now I'll explain his quarrel with Leibniz. So hence in the concept of pure understanding, matter precedes form. And on this account, Leibniz first assumed things, that is monads, and an internal power of representation in them, in order to subsequently to ground on that their outer relation and the community of their states, namely of the representations, on that. Hence space and time are possible, the former only through the relation of substances, the latter through the connection of their determinations as grounds and consequences, and so would it in fact have to be if the pure understanding could be related to objects immediately, and if space and time were determinations of the things in themselves. But if it is only sensible intuitions in which we determine all objects, merely as appearances, then the form of intuition, as a subjective cons constitution of sensibility, then precedes all matter, that is, the sensations. Thus space and time precede all appearance and all data of appearances, and instead first make the latter possible. So, to kind of reiterate my short version there, Leibniz, for Leibniz, matter precedes form, and for Kant, form precedes matter. So this kind of polemic goes further, where Kant writes, lacking such a transcendental topic or transcendental scope or lens, and thus deceived by the amphiboly of the concepts of reflection, the famous Leibniz constructed 
uh, constructed or construed, let me read it right, constructed, sorry, an intellectual system of the world, or rather believed himself able to cognize the inner constitution of things by comparing all objects only with the understanding and the abstract formal concepts of its thinking. So according to Kant for Leibniz, space and time were, I guess, only conduits for the possibility of recognizing things in themselves. Where Kant is a lot more, uh, he's a lot more humility in saying, we actually can't know that for sure. So, of course, to reiterate, we can't know a thing in itself for Kant, and for that reason, we cannot actually know ourselves. Da-da-da. Can't actually know ourselves. And he says in a kind of grim way, those transcendental questions, however, that go beyond nature, we will never be able to answer, even if all of our nature is revealed to us, since it is never given to us to observe for our own mind with any other intuition than that of our inner sense. For in that lies the mystery of the origin of our sensibility, its relation to an object and what might be the transcendental ground of this unity undoubtedly lie too deeply hidden for us, who know even ourselves only through inner sense, oh, sorry, who know even ourselves only through inner sense, thus his appearance, to be able to use such an unsuitable tool of investigation to find out anything except always more appearances, even though we would gladly investigate their nonsensical cause. So if we are to get anywhere with ourselves, we only see more appearances, right? Because we can't get at the thing in itself, which is like, I don't know how Kant kept writing this, arriving at this very logical point, but of course he trekked on and we're only about, I don't know, a third the way through the book. This would be like 10 hours of talking about it. So another example he gives is that the only way we can know anything at all in the world is by knowing what it isn't. So an example, we can only know warmth if we know what cold is, or if we know warmth as a relation to coldness. We can only know what darkness is in relation to light. We know just because darkness is the absence of light, which gives us a ground by which to kind of have light. It's all very, it's it's like Kant is, you know, sitting on the fence and he's not sure where he wants to fall, like where he wants to commit himself. And so he remains in this kind of radical, ambiguous position, which is super interesting. But at times it's like, God damn it, give us something here. Um, but yeah, okay, so that'll wrap up this one. Which finishes up that uh, the amphiboly of conscious reflection through the conscious thing, um, and now the next section or the next episode will start with the transcendental dialectic. So keep that in mind. And for those that listen this far, I hope you got something out of this. I know I did. Every time I return to this, I'm figuring more stuff out. Um, but yeah, if I missed anything, 